Welcome to Case by Case, the show that covers the most riveting, controversial legal cases from all corners of the globe and all walks of life. On today's episode, we will be looking at the quandary of life support in the case of Elder Hay Children's Foundation Trust versus the Evans family. Reaching a conclusion about this case requires answering certain factual and moral questions. Can the individual on life support get better with treatment? Should the interests of the patient be taken into account when deciding to continue treatment? What are the best interests of someone on life support? We will explore these central questions throughout today's podcast. Alfie, the family and all of our supporters are stronger than ever and we will keep fighting all the way. We will never give up on you, Alfie. Thank you. 2016 was a blessing and a curse for the Evans family. Little Alfie was born on May 9, 2016. Although unexpected, Alfie's birth was a prayer in disguise for his teen parents, Kate James and Tom Evans. Soon, however, the young parents discovered that something was wrong with their little boy. The signs were minor at first. His mother began noticing Alfie's lack of general interaction and disinclination to play with his toys, behavior very unsuited for a young infant of Alfie's age. The smile and laughter of her little boy soon disappeared. When first hearing about this case, I was surprised to find out that the doctors diagnosed Alfie with a diversion squint and simply told his parents not to worry. Would things be different if they looked closer into Alfie's condition? Would these young boys still be in a coma after two strenuous years? Maybe two-year-old Alfie Evans would be learning the alphabet and how to count to ten. Things took a turn for the worse in the fall of 2016. Alfie was entered into the Alder Hay Hospital, where an MRI revealed Alfie's brain development to be on par with that of a two-month-old infant. A month later, Alfie suffered a plethora of health issues, including seizures, fever, and coughing, which caused him to go into cardiac arrest, in which his breathing was supported by a bag mask valve. The following January provided newfound hope for the Evans family, as Alfie was diagnosed with pneumonia and proceeded to fight off the infection. Both parents believed this battle was a potential road to general recovery, but a medical test revealed Alfie to be unresponsive to pain in the cranial nerves and captured a number of epileptic spasms. After much concern over the state of Alfie's health, Dr. Judith Cross reviewed all of his tests and concluded that Alfie is suffering from a progressive, ultimately fatal neurodegenerative condition, with each periodical test revealing more damage to the brain than the last. To further understand Alfie's condition, we're now joined by Professor Judith Cross, Chair of Child Epilepsy at the University College London. Thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. So you were brought into the Alfie Evans case as a medical expert on behalf of the Alder Hay Hospital. Can you explain what that means and what your role was in the case? Well, I examined all the family's birth records and medical history, as well as the patient's periodical MRI and EEG test to reveal any brain developments or lack thereof. I'm not necessarily coming up with a diagnosis, especially with how delicate Alfie's situation is, but I aim to provide the best medical advice and conclusions based on the evidence at hand. And based on such tests and results, 
What can you concretely say about Alfie's potential road to discovery? I don't want to bore you or your listeners with any medical jargon, but the electrocephalogram test, or EEG, is used to find problems related to electrical activity in the brain by tracking brainwave patterns. And as time passed, these EEG tests for Alfie have shown rapid deterioration in activity, and only after epileptic seizures does Alfie show substantial form of brain activity, which then quickly dissipates after the seizure. I'm only interested to see if there's any possibility for the brain to recover, and based on such tests, even if Alfie is able to sustain respiration in the short term, his futile respiratory efforts will not sustain life. Further medical treatment to Alfie would only prolong his life and would not have effect on his brain's ability to recover. It seems that Alfie's condition is one that has not been seen here in the medical field. Is there an exact diagnosis for Alfie, or is this just a very rare case? I think that it is the main reason why the parents of Alfie decided to bring this case to court. Each medical case is treated independently. So you can't rely on precedent or past cases to di dictate decisions relating to Alfie. With Alfie's neurodegenerative disorder, we are unable to track what triggered the disorder, making a definite diagnosis very improbable. In that, dis in that regard, it is a very rare case. But there have been numerous cases around the world with infants having a history of seizures, abnormal brain activity, and assisted ventilation to prolong life. Professor Cross, thank you for this information. It has been a pleasure, and I appreciate you sharing your thoughts with us today at Case by Case. Thank you. Understanding Alfie's condition is difficult. As Dr. Cross just stated, every case is different. What we do know is, Alfie is unable to enjoy even the simplest parts of life. He can't breathe on his own, see, eat, or move. Doctors believe that there is nothing to be done for Alfie. However, his parents still hold on to the small hope they have left. Possibly in denial, they do not believe their son should be taken off the ventilator and have continually refused the hospital's attempts to turn off the ventilator. Additionally, Alfie's parents want him transferred to another hospital. However, the Elder Hay Hospital believed this would cause Alfie more harm than good. This began the long legal battle between the Elder Hay Hospital and the parents of Alfie Evans. The High Court judge assigned to the case, Justice Hayden, ultimately decided in favor of the Alder Hay Hospital. In his ruling, Hayden makes it clear that his decision is grounded in past legal precedent. Specifically, he believes his decision to be grounded in four past cases and legal frameworks. First, the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health produced a guideline for children life support decisions in March of 2015. Hayden, in his judgment, believes this framework to be relevant because it establishes the limits of what is in the child's best interest, um, specifically in comatose situations. He believes that the Royal College guidelines establish how the court should rule the case. Specifically, the court must rule in favor of what is in the child's interest rather than the parents. This view is also grounded in English law. The Children's Act of 1989 established a legally founding rule that only treatment that is in a child's interest may be lawfully provided. Moreover, he believes that two past cases reflect this rationale. First, in Aintree University Hospital v. James in 2013, 
The court wrote in its judgment, hence, the focus is on whether it is in the patient's best interest to give the treatment rather than whether it's in his best interest to withhold or withdraw it. If the treatment is not in his best interest, the court will not be able to give its consent on his behalf, and it will follow that it will be lawful to withhold or withdraw it. In the case of Charlie Gard, an infant in the UK with similar neurodegenerative conditions as Alfie, the court indicated, the sole principle is that the best interest of the child must prevail, and that must apply even to cases where parents, for the best of motives, hold on to some alternative view. For these cases, Justice Hayden accepted that, even though he acknowledged the medical evidence revealing treatment for Alfie was futile, it did not follow that such futility led to the immediate withdrawal of ventilation. As the parents were Roman Catholics, the judge set out in the judgment extracts from an open letter by His Holiness Pope Francis to the president, president of the Pontifical Academy for Life, dated November 2017, which called for greater wisdom in striking a balance between medical efforts to prolong life and the responsible decision to withhold treatment when death became inevitable. After establishing the framework for judgment, Hayden considered several key pieces of evidence before reaching his decision. Most striking was the indisputable fact that Alfie's brain was devastated by the progressive degeneration. Alfie no longer had the capacity to hear, see, smell, or respond to touch, other than reflexively. Yet two videos showed Alfie yawning, which caused Hayden great concern. However, Dr. R, a consultant in pediatric neurology, convincingly showed that such yawning was reflexive rather than a true yawn, which requires a multitude of brain functions that Alfie simply did not have. While the parents held that treatment from Germany or Italy could help Alfie, Hayden concluded that there is no prospect for treatment and that Alfie would have to live with a ventilator. Justice Hayden reluctantly reached the clear conclusion that Alfie's best interests required the withdrawal of ventilation and the provision of good quality palliative care to keep him as comfortable as possible at the last stage of his life. The father's proposals to transport Alfie to Italy and Germany were irreconcilable with his best interests in the face of a total absence of treatment for Alfie's condition. As Hayden wrote, Alfie requires peace, quiet, and privacy in order that he may conclude his life as he lived it with dignity. Alfie and his family are not alone in despite, as over thousands of people across the world have shown their support through the group Alfie's Army. Rallying behind the Evans family, Alfie's Army has garnered much media attention to both themselves and the actual case. In fact, this case mirrors the case involving Charlie Gard, who had a similar mitochondrial disorder in the United Kingdom just a year before. The Evans case just seems to be an affirmation to the decision in the Charlie Gard case, with both families ending up losing their respective cases. The case solidifies the importance of media and legal decision-making and ethical discussions. Social media has given power to the people. Trump, the Pope, and thousands of others have weighed in. We have had to have these discussions about how and who should decide on what makes life worth living and what kinds of chances are worth taking. Moreover, it answers the question of who should decide. How much should the decision-making be left to the parents? While most parents want to do the best for their children, parents can abuse their children or can be radically mistaken, and for that reason, we need oversight to ensure the children are protected. If Alfie's parents had requested ongoing intensive care for an herbal treatment with zero scientific evidence or rationale, that would be abuse. But they weren't. 
They were asking for a treatment with a clear scientific rationale and relevant evidence with the support of a qualified medical expert, Professor Haas. The case deems that protections must exist, but doctors should not activate these legal mechanisms or stop parents traveling for medical care for their child unless there is a disagreement between the parents, where they're going to an unsafe place, where they're very confident the parent's choice is unreasonable. That requires doctors to think ethically, as well as having all the scientific evidence. The problem is not who has the power. Instead, it is how it is used and the need for robust and humble ethical deliberation. Some have seen this as further attacks on experts, a current hot topic. But this case is more about disputed values than disputed facts. What has been absent, and is absent from society, is a sound, secular, ethical approach to these life and death issues. If anything, Alfie Evans solidified a monolithic, consolidated moral legacy and ethical viewpoint on comatose children. If there isn't a substantial amount of evidence showing signs of recovery in a person in a semi-vegetative state, it is in the best interest of the child to not prolong life. The uncertainty of Alfie's diagnosis is what is most significant about this case and what should be remembered. Because I think if there was a specific diagnosis, there would have been a much more swift decision by the courts, speculating that it might not have been the same outcome as Charlie Yard. But since there is a major uncertainty revolving Alfie's condition, his parents were able to use uncertainty as hope to continue the case to higher courts, unsure of Alfie how it progressed as time went on. This case clarified what limited rights the parents have on their son and reassures the huge reliance on doctors determining the fate of their patients and the ultimate decision of the high court. Next up, we are going to be joined by an expert on bioethics. We are now here with Dr. Raymond DeVries. We would like to thank you for joining us on Case by Case. It is a pleasure to have you on the show and to receive your expert opinion on the Alfie Evans case. Would you mind starting with a summary of your background for the listeners? No problem. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I am the Associate Director of the Center for Bioethics and Social Sciences and Medicine at the University of Michigan. Uh, by training, I'm a sociologist, but I've had a long interest in bioethics in particular, uh, how bioethics came to the place it is today and how we rely on bioethicists to help us sort through cases like the Evans case. Great, so getting right into the case. In your expert opinion, would you agree with the decision of the court and what would your reasoning be behind this? This is where my expertise might be a little bit of a problem for you because as a sociologist, I'm really interested in dissecting the case so before I come to any conclusion about did the court do the right thing, I'd like us to think a bit about what the court used to decide what the right thing is. So in this particular case, what I find fascinating as a sociologist of bioethics is who has the authority to decide in a case like the Evans case. Correct. And I may be jumping ahead to some of your other questions, but let me go ahead. <laughs> um, and you can think about authority in a couple different ways. So one way to think about it is who has the medical authority to say what should be done with his child? But you can challenge that by then saying who has the moral authority to decide what's to be done with this child? 
And what the court decided to do was use English law and make a decision about what is in the best interest of the child. And that's, that's kind of a classic move in bioethics. So when someone can't decide for themselves, what ethicists say is you have two ways you can go. You can decide what's the best interest of this person, be it a child or somebody with dementia or somebody who's unconscious. You could say what's in the best interest of this person. You can also say what would this person have wanted to do? And we call that substituted judgment. So sometimes a person wants something done that you and I might not agree is in their best interest, but if that's what they wanted done to themselves, we should do what they wanted to do. So now, of course, a child, it's hard to know from a child, especially like Alfie Evans, what, what did this child want done? So the court resorted to the standard of what's in the best interest and said continued treatment will not be in the best interest of this child. That comes from a place of medical authority. In our medical opinion, there's nothing that we can do for this child that won't harm him further or won't be in his best interest. I think, stepping back a minute, who has the moral authority to decide that? Now you're asking a question about do the parents have a right to decide what is in the best interest of the child? And that's where this case becomes so interesting ethically. Um, that was a total roundabout way of saying, I'm not sure I want to tell, I'm not sure I know if the court acted in the proper way or in an improper way. But I, to me, those are the key issues in the case. Understood. So in this particular case, do you think this sets an ethical precedent for other cases in the future? Like, will they rely on the evidence that um, the court decided on, like, upon now to further, like, further benefit other cases? Or, like, what would be your take on? No, I do, I do think it sets a precedent. I think if, it, well, this case follows on the Charlie Gard case. Yes. And the Charlie Gard case was a lot like this, and it created a lot of, uh, interest around the world, in, including the Pope. The Pope was involved in the Guard case. The Pope was involved in the Evans case, making a case for life and saying we should choose for life and ignoring the court's argument that continued treatment will actually hurt the child. So I do think, I do think this will set a, a precedence. And in your opinion, if this were to occur at the University of Michigan Hospital, how would you juxtapose that decision made in, uh, in the United Kingdom? Yeah, that's a great question <laughs> and a difficult question. Again, let me remind you that I'm a sociologist. So the culture of the UK is clearly different than the culture of the United States. And as you know, we in the United States are in the middle of uh, a continued culture war. So a case like this, if it were to come to the attention of the public, you would have a strong conflict between right to life people and people claiming we shouldn't harm innocent children, innocent people, we shouldn't make people live past a point where their life makes sense. So I, th I think it would be, um, it would create quite a discussion. Uh, it's hard to know what would happen. A lot of these cases never make it to the courts. And that, to me, again, as a sociologist, what's interesting is the parents who have the moral authority to make a decision about their child cede that authority to the doctors who have the medical authority. So I think it's a rare case where parents would say, we disagree with you, doctor, when the doctor's saying, look, we can keep doing this, but it's really going to hurt your child. The child has no chance of recovery. It'll essentially be torture. Um, I think most parents would end up agreeing with that kind of medical authority, and their moral authority would be given over to the medical authority. 
You like how I'm evading the questions? <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, in the UK, are there ethics boards similar to the ones that we have in the United States? Yeah, there are ethics committees that are advisory. Typically, the reason this went to a court and not an ethics committee is like in the United States, ethics committees are only advisory. So you bring your problem to an ethics committee, and what an ethics committee does is says, these are the moral issues involved. And we think there are solutions for you, but we're not going to tell you which solution. So one thing that's interesting about ethics is if you go to an ethicist, an ethicist will say, there are things you can do that are absolutely unethical. But that doesn't mean then there's only one ethical solution to the problem. So ethicists can identify something like, oh my goodness, don't do that, it's unethical. But they can't say, do this, because it's the only and proper ethical thing to do. And you will find, in this case, in other cases, in cases from the United States, you will find ethicists who disagree about the ethical thing to do. Uh, but all of them might agree it's unethical to take an innocent baby and kill it because you can't afford to, to pay for its upbringing. Clearly, that's wrong. But what do you do in cases like this? And you can find ethicists on either side of the issue. And so in this particular case, since Alfie has been in a coma for over two years now, you think that the board has, or the committee has made the right decision, or the court has come to the right conclusion? Like if we were looking out for the interest of the child, since the child has no ability to kind of speak for itself. Yeah, I, I think the committee has come to a right conclusion. That's my point about there's more than one ethical answer to this question. I'm not saying it's the right solution. What do you think would have been another alternative solution? Well, I, you know, the, I'm a big fan of um, saying that one way to solve an ethical problem is trying to do what is most respectful of the patient that's involved. And I think respect involves more than just considering the medical condition of the child. It also involves considering the cultural, religious, social dimensions of, of the child. So I think listening to the parents could have been a solution. One thing we didn't talk about, and I don't think the court in, in the UK talked about, is what are the justice questions involved here? So, you know, this case is a lot like a case we're struggling with in this country. Struggling with is not the right word, but it's in the news, which is, do parents have the right to say my child should not be vaccinated? And there's a similar kind of case. The parent's saying, it's my child. I don't want you giving a vaccination because I think a vaccination will cause autism. Well, there's no scientific evidence of that. But do we say to the, well, it's your child. You have the right to decide that. There we say there are justice questions involved, which is if too many parents decide that, we're going to have a resurgence of smallpox. Um, so we're saying, I'm sorry, parents. You don't have a choice because the interest of the public, the public health interest overrides your personal interest in your child. So you could bring the justice question to the Evans case as well, which is, should we allow these parents to continue using medical resources endlessly, even though there's no hope of this child recovering? And that would add a wrinkle to the question of, did the court decide the right thing? Um, I think if you throw justice in the mix, that puts more weight on the side of their argument that, look, the child is only being hurt by further treatment. There's no chance of recovery. It involves using medical resources that could be used elsewhere. For all these reasons, we think we ought to stop care for your child. And so kind of further um, with that point, uh, I believe 
in the past few days, there's been um, recent um, recent news on the case that the court is not allowing Alfie Evans to uh, to move to another hospital in Italy. Do you think that that was a rightful decision of the court, or should um, should the hospital have allowed them to move and try to further their treatment abilities? Yeah, that's a tough call because they're now taking it out of the national health system and bringing it to another health system. So they're using other resources. Um, if the court really insists that the best interest of the child should be honored, then the parent's taking the child somewhere else. It, to me, that seems like increasing the harm to the child, actually getting them ready, moving them to another country, mm. introducing them to another hospital, hooking up to another set of machines. So I think by their logic that it's consistent for them to say, I'm sorry, you can't take this child. But it raises the thorny question of when can the state take control of your child? And I mean, that question of who has the ultimate moral authority, I think still hangs over this whole case. Um, the question of money is interesting in that case be because the parents could say, look, our case has become a cause celeb and people are throwing money at us and we now have all the resources we need. But money is one resource, medical care is another resource and there's not unlimited medical care, be it taken from the NHS or taken from the Italian system or I saw there was some talk of bringing the child to America as well, taking it from the American system. So I, I think the justice question stays even if they're finding a lot of funding from Kickstarter or wherever they're going for money. And then, so aside from the case, would you say the law defines culture? <laughs> um, no, I would say culture defines law. In what way? I think our notion of what what is justice and what is fair is really shaped by cultural ideas of, um, of who has authority. So I've, I've been fascinated by the relationship between medicine and law. So when the court has to make a decision about medical care. They need to rely on the authority of medicine. A, a judge or a lawyer doesn't know as much about medicine as a physician does. So they absolutely have to rely on the judgment of physicians. But that is, that is a cultural notion, that we're going to give our legal authority to the, to the medical. We, in an earlier time, we would have said, who gets to decide on this? Oh, priests. Priests have the ultimate authority in some cultures. So law, the culture really shapes the content of law or, or who we listen to in the legal system for what should be done with the law. So I'm, I mean, there's an interaction. Law shapes culture as well. Like, I don't know if you want to go down this avenue, but if you look at the civil rights era, we created laws that demanded integration. And the fact that law demanded integration, people began to live together and it changed the cultural ideas about different groups of people. And the status of minorities and attitudes about minorities. So I, I, I do believe there's an interaction, actually. Law changes culture, but culture also shapes what the laws are. Okay, it's a very interesting perspective. Um, we would like to thank you for your time with us on Case by Case and wish you the best of luck in your future endeavors. You're welcome. Pleasure was all mine. This case sheds light on the age-old question of does law define culture or vice versa? To make any conclusions on this matter, we first need to define law and culture. Laws are the rules and regulations that govern society as common, enforceable norms and practices. Culture is the collection of beliefs and behaviors that define what is normal on a person-to-person -person basis. Tom Evans and Kate James, 
although not presenting themselves as devout or observant, are Roman Catholics. They not only view Alfie as their own child, but also a child of God. Throughout the trial, they believed their faith was an important factor that should have been taken into consideration. The decision made by the court to take the side of the Alder Hay Hospital goes against the culture and religion of Tom Evans and Kate James. So, in your opinion, is it right for the law to decide the fate of Alfie Evans? I want to explore the question of how the state positions itself in cases like these. We traditionally think of the state as a protector of life. The state was created to enforce natural law, or laws that we derive from our own reason. These laws traditionally include such things as the right to self-preservation and the right to life. However, in the case of Alfie Evans, the state is the final arbiter for who is and isn't alive. The state argues that children really only have a right to life insofar that the life is in their best interest. In turn, this paradox defines the scope of the government's power to decide when life should or should not be preserved. This is especially important when considering the legal precedent acknowledged by Hayden. Importantly, Hayden also acknowledges dignity as a factor in a decision. This reveals how the laws encompasses specific moral virtues that we rationally believe to be important. But given that the state also violates natural law by removing one's right to live, the state positions itself beyond a defender of natural law. Therefore, law shifts from a state of natural law to legal positivism, in which whether a certain rule is a law, creating legal obligations to comply with it, all depends on its source. In legal positivism, a rule can be a genuine, valid law, even though it is grossly unjust. Therefore, you may believe that the court made the morally wrong decision in the Alfin Evans case, but the legal positive nature of law legitimizes Hayden's decision. I want to thank everyone for taking the time to listen to myself, the testimony of Dr. Judith Cross, and our conversation with Dr. Raymond DeVries as we delved into the details of the Alder Hay Children's Hospital versus the Evans family case. Looking for more? On our website, you can locate all the specific facts and opinions on this case. We would love to hear your thoughts, and I've set up a discussion board on our website for those of you interested in giving your opinion. Subscribe below. Thank you.